we have different states in this country playing hot potato with actual human beings. Yeah. And I think that's the problem here is that like, look, like we've got people in our country who need help and they need to be resettled. Both sides in Congress have this legal mess that we have of how we regulate our border. And one side is saying like, let's over enforce that. And the other side is saying, yeah. let's not enforce that. And it doesn't get to the fact that there is a legal mess in the middle. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, what do we have today, Corey? Well, Robbie, on today's show, the comedy world is having a couple of cancel culture moments we want to talk about involving Andrew Schultz and Dave Chappelle. Then we'll go to two stories centered on the southern border, touching on the fraught politics and the multi-billion dollar business of record high immigration. Finally, we'll debate whether kids should have homework and we'll bring you a couple of quick news updates. But first things first, let's talk about Alex Jones and Glenn Greenwald, the anti-media buddy cops we never knew we needed. At a recent screening for a documentary about Jones's Life, Greenwald asked the InfoWars host this. You just said that, that you have made mistakes. Obviously, one of those is the stuff you said about Sandy Hook. We watched you in the film come very clean about the fact that you made statements that turned out to be untrue. You've obviously spent a lot of kind of reflective time. It's like the soulful Alex Jones we got to see in the last part of the, the film. What is it that you think caused you to do that um i mean you you reference some things i you know and i just i identify with it myself that when you know people who lie for a living are telling you that you're a liar when people who are, are whose job it is to spread disinformation are accusing you of doing that you kind of want to dig in a little bit and and not give an inch to people who you know aren't criticizing you in good faith now ravi greenwald is a pulitzer winning journalist but that's a pretty telling way to phrase a question isn't it there's just so much going on here at, at this screening and i haven't seen the documentary i think it hasn't been publicly released yet so i don't really have a lot to say about the this this work but greenwald i find really fascinating because he is like one of the leading alternative journalists right now in this country and to me like this question is so revealing of his psychology like he says a couple of things number one is he's like if, if you know how do you feel when liars call you liars i'm like well you can be a liar and if a liar calls you a liar you're still a liar <laughs> so like you could accept the premise that there's something wrong with the mainstream media mm -hmm. but i would still you know posit that alex jones is either a liar or just an incredibly delusional character. And the record here is really, really strong that Alex Jones has no credibility. And so the idea that like we should be spending a lot of time viewing him as a victim, especially, you know, as he's in the middle of a case right now where he's already been, he's already lost a civil case from the victims of Sandy Hook mm -hmm. parents. I'm just curious as to what somebody like Glenn Greenwald, a very serious journalist, like what is he doing? just so that there's no ambiguity. Like you can take issue with whether or not his legal case now is that I I didn't know and I really believe this to be true in order to get around like defama defamation right. and um, legal problems. And you can take problem with that. But like regardless, in the context of this conversation, he has disavowed what he did say. I don't necessarily believe that. And I'm not right. saying that to be a fact, but mm -hmm. Greenwald is acknowledging that. Like he's not living in this conspiratorial yeah, world, which is I, important to say. That is the George Costanza defense. Like it's not a lie 
if you believe it. And that's basically what, well, what Jones is saying. Well, it is also our saying. legal standard. But well, he the did, question is, is it actually true? And I yeah. think that that I don't I have the answer to well, that. Well, the fact I don't, that he was spreading these these vicious lies about Sandy Hook it's hours, horrific. Absolutely yeah. hours horrific. after it happened. I think that truly shows he didn't have any evidence to suggest that it was fake. So that was just something that he was trying to push to push this, you know, Second Amendment narrative and, around people trying to take people's guns. He, well, he also said it. I think what's even more damaging is not that he said it within hours after the incident, but that years afterwards, mm -hmm. he was still, still peddling this yeah, conspiracy. No, and you know, he's, and this isn't like some, you know, there's one thing like where, you know, you make a, a factual error either because you're biased mm -hmm. or because you were mistaken and you dig in and that's wrong. There's another thing to, to believe that there are crisis actors out there who would make up such a thing and to dig in your heels Absolutely. for years and years and years and in the face of people bullying these parents, which is what this lawsuit is about, and mm -hmm. making their lives a living hell after they already lost their kids, to me, this is disgusting. But Absolutely, I don't think anyone's yeah for sure. Like that. I know that you're not you're not defending but this. But the idea of a serious journalist like Greenwall taking That's a right guy like this serious, yeah. that is well, very... well, I actually think the question that he asked him is interesting because regardless, if you look at all of the Alex Jones interviews, including Mike and Kelly and all the people who've sat down with him, mm -hmm. they always go through the Sandy Hook thing, rightfully so. Right. And he actually asked him an interesting reflective question about what happened that I think if you're looking at it from the vantage point of somebody who wants to prevent conspiratorial rabbit holes from just like becoming gapingly wide for our, our national discourse, it's actually interesting. He said, what is it about kind of how social media works, about how kind of groups function? Have you thought about some of the psychological and cultural dynamics that, that led you to, to make some of those mistakes in Sandy Hook? The word mistakes, I'm not, that's right. generous. But I yeah. actually think that's an interesting question. Totally. How do we prevent it? What brought you there? Like going to the source of, you know, we talk about conspiracy theorists and the fringe and actually talking to the people who are kind of the animus behind it is fascinating to me. Yeah, I actually think that there's there's some parts of this interview that I would find fascinating. But like, here's another quote from Greenwald. And, and this is where I, I start to think like, Yes, like he has a right to ask these questions. Some of these answers to these questions, I think, are actually really good for us as the public to know. Greenwald was characterizing Jones in a weird way. He asked him this other question. He says, When you are somebody who stands against kind of establishment authority and establishment institutions, you know that one of the things they're going to do is seize on any mistake you make. So, it's, 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 and this is what I kind of try and counsel people all the time who are trying to be dissonant, which is you need to be a thousand times more careful. Because they can lie all the time, and no one's going to call them out on it because they're on the side of the people with the more powerful megaphones. A couple things about this. Number one, he calls him a dissident, which I think is doing a lot of work here. Like, you know, there's this Mark Andreessen quote that they said they, they called Einstein crazy, but they also called Charles Manson crazy. Like, dissident here, like the, the Unabomber was a dissident, I guess. Like, you know, like the guy that this is like some kind of anti establishment, like you could feel the sympathy coming through what Glenn Greenwald is saying. And I think this gets at not just Greenwald, but a lot of these uh, alternative media figures who have so much to offer often. They're so obsessed with this so-called mainstream media. And by mainstream media, they don't mean all of the mainstream media. They mean pretty much MSNBC and the New yeah. York Times and liberal media. And he's so obsessed with it that he can't step outside of it and be like, look, they fuck up all the time the mainstream media. But I'm talking to a guy who is a complete crank and calling him a dissident. Like to me, that that's just a false equivalency or not even a false, like it's, he's lost track, I think, of any like objective standard to evaluate who is a journalist who's not. Well, I think it's, it's interesting to me that 
I don't know. I don't know. I'm not interested in whether Alex Jones has changed as a person. Like, I'm just not interested right, in him, same. period. But his response to these questions are actually really interesting or to these these statements. He says, <laughs> which i don't know i'm not watching his show but it's interesting that there's like some degree of self-awareness that seems to be well, coming through why here, is the but frame that the the, the the error is handing the mainstream media something as opposed to just being factually inaccurate is wrong in and of itself like the way that greenwald frames this is like you're giving them what they want as opposed to hey there's actual families here like yeah. at some point i want you yeah, to be like absolutely. hey like it's not about the, it's not about whether chris hayes is excited about your mistake <laughs> it's well, about whether you're accurate or not like Corey, what are let's let's put this in context what are some of alex jones's like this is not just about sandy hook yeah i mean like if, if, if he had just made these horrendous lies about sandy hook that would be one thing as bad as that is but this man has made a career out of spreading basis conspiracy theories he said 9-11 was an inside job he said the oklahoma city bombing back in 95 was an inside job uh he he talks about pizzagate this idea that hillary clinton was running some uh sex trafficking ring in washington dc at a Out pizza, a pizza parlor he said obama and hillary clinton are demon reptiles they're not even human. He, I remember him just screaming into the camera, these people are not freaking human. I mean, I, I remember that. To pause for a second, the Pizzagate is a great example where like I'm a, a pretty much a First Amendment purist, but the people like Alex Jones spreading these lies led people like a guy to go to, exactly. to the pizzeria and try to like sh sh rescue these kids. Like they have, this has real world consequences. Of course. And he's, but he was he arrested for that. For yeah, but I'm saying like I'm not no, that saying that could have gone really bad. I'm not saying Alex Jones should be arrested for it, but I do think like in the public square we should treat him a certain way. And yeah. to me, like a credible journalist like Glenn Greenwald, who's done a lot of great things, like whether it's like calling out the Obama administration on drones, mm -hmm. or you know, even though I don't agree with everything with Snowden, like that was real journalism, and he's done some heroic things in Brazil uh, for freedom of the press and calling out corruption there. Like the idea that he would go here and because he's so obsessed with MSNBC. Yeah. And the New York Times and you know he's he's like this contrarian where he was he was part of I think the liberal media for a while he's at Intercept he was viewed as a left-wing journalist and, and because of whatever gripe he has now with them he now views as anybody that the, the left-wing media doesn't like now is somebody who he's sympathetic to very clearly and to me that's the problem here not like that we're trying to figure out Alex Jones and like his psychology yeah. which I do think well, is which an is important the, the effort here. point of the documentary though that he agreed to be the the host for this conversation after. I mean, I would just say all in all, I think doing this in the first place and sitting down with him is a service because I think that it benefits society to not relegate people who have so much power completely to the fringes where we don't understand and they go underground and we lose touch with how a large faction of the world is thinking. And it's not to say that you need to be like 
gracious to them or you need to praise them or you need to say that they've done anything right, you have to call out their wrongs. But I think engaging in that conversation is the only way that we don't end up with really dangerous pockets of people in our country, which is what we're seeing. I think it legitimizes him. I think it legitimizes Jones. And if you want to talk about somebody with zero credibility, Jones has a negative amount of credibility. Okay. Greenwald seems sympathetic to Jones in this interview. And I haven't seen the whole thing. He seems sympathetic. Now I've seen like people like Greenwald, they have this agenda. And if you have an agenda, then I can't trust anything you say because everything you say is not going to be based off of the journalistic integrity of getting something right. It's going to be based off of pushing that agenda. I and, and you can even believe, as I do, that there are certain pockets of the media, lots of them, that have agendas. And I think yeah. it's true. We talked about Fox News last week. I definitely think talking about Chris Hayes uh, and, and talking about people on MSNBC who definitely have a liberal agenda. I Absolutely. believe that to be true. I don't think that they're on the Alex Jones level of problematic. Uh, um, well, and I would just want to agree that I think every single journalist has an agenda and that's just being a human being. 100%. And the problem is that our newsrooms have aggregated in a way that everyone has similar agendas and so they're not checking each other. And I think that's, I think it's just true that every single outlet, every single journalist has an agenda, period. Some I, are worse, disagree, some are worse than ever. I think, I think worse well, if, than you're, others. If, you're, if your agenda is to get at truth, then you're a true journalist. But if your agenda is political or ideological, every human being that's has not a blind journalist, spots, that's a pundit. And I, but but I, I, I think totally everyone agree that, does. I agree with you, Ricky, that today, yeah, most journalists have agendas that are not real journalists. Though, but, I, but I think like, I, I'm, I'm with Ricky that everybody brings some kind of bias. I just think that there's like a, there's a rank ordering of the level of problematic bias. Oh, absolutely, bias. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying it's all equivalent, but I yeah. think that part of the problem is that our newsrooms don't have complimentary agendas 100%. anymore, That's, which is what yeah, we're trying to with fix. So speaking of people with agendas, some people just have an agenda to make us all laugh. Comedians constantly have to worry about their work getting canceled if they make crappy TV shows. But a different type of canceling is coming for comedy. Both Andrew Schultz and Dave Chappelle have found themselves embroiled in controversies surrounding jokes deemed too offensive for certain venues and certain streaming services. Ricky, let's start with Andrew Schultz. Uh, what happened with his latest comedy special? Okay, so I think this is a really great story and like a huge victory for comedy. But essentially, he um, he was selling a comedy special to a streaming giant that he didn't name. Sources are saying it's Amazon, but that's not fully confirmed. Mm -hmm. I think he's just not throwing stones at them. But essentially, he he sold the rights. He made the special. He sent it to the executives to preview. And they came back and they said, X, Y, and Z jokes are too offensive. Either edit them or cut them out before we send it to or we publish this. And he said no, which I think is really principled and really awesome. And I also would point out, he talks a lot about how he tries to hit both sides of the political spectrum yeah. in his comedy. And I think that is accurate. Mm -hmm. um, like he tries to balance it so everyone is kind of offended, which I think is an art today. Um, but so he had to take out all of his personal life savings because they'd already invested in this, um, in producing this special that was ready to go. And he bought back the rights and released it on like a pay-per-view situation on his own website for $15 and just gave it to his fans and said, like, let's see if we can make this investment work. And I think it was a test of whether you still need a streaming giant or someone or a big name behind you or a logo in order to be successful. And he tripled his investment, which is wow. really awesome. Yeah, I think this is a huge win for like, not just the First Amendment, but I think for the arts. And yeah. I mm -hmm. think I have no idea what's in this special, but I oh, think- it's, in, it's crazy. 
But I think in general, <laughs> like this is what people should be able to do. And I yeah. think the marketplace of ideas should take care of it. And I don't think like executives sitting in Hollywood should make all the decisions about what we're allowed to see and not allowed to yeah. see. And and I think that's true even of what our last topic, right? Like I think like the creation of that documentary, whatever is in it is probably protected by the First Amendment. Yeah. And there are probably a lot of places that didn't want to put that out, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we had a great discussion because somebody had the courage and the resources to tell some kind of story. Now, I think in this case, what's interesting is that I don't see as much grievance politics around this, Ricky, have you? Like, I think it's more like people being like, oh, hey, like now there's like an end run around these executives. There's less like complaining about whatever studio this was and more being like, hey, like, all right, like there's, this, we're in a new phase of comedy where people could put yeah. their own stuff out. I mean, I think he is also like the one in a million comic that actually has the fan base and platform yeah. to do that and pull yeah. it off. So it's not as practical for everyone else. Yeah. But um, it's also like, I mean, we've seen Netflix pretty consistently recently just stand by the comics that they platform and yeah. like draw a line in the sand. And I think it's a demonstration at least to the executives that the free market will like flood somewhere else and there is a demand for uncensored honest comedy yeah and yeah. so i think that in the end i mean money talks and i think this the streaming giants will shift towards this yeah andrew schultz i like andrew schultz's comedy he says some things that i don't totally agree with but i like his comedy because he does take shots at everyone every side i've always been a big fan of the whole like the south park family guy method of no one is safe no one is safe yeah. from this and if you're not just fixating on a single group then I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. And, and Schultz, he goes there. I just wanna let y'all know right now, ladies, uh, I am with you. I think it's your body, your choice. I agree with you on that. 100%. I agree with you when you say that men should have no say in the decisions you make with your bodies. Those are your decisions to make and yours alone. And I feel that way because uh, at the end of the day, when we all go up to heaven and God's like, why are we all killing babies? We're gonna be like, y'all. <laughs> I think they were very clear whose decision this was, God. Uh, <laughs> looks like you need to pay for your sins, babe. <laughs> Even though I paid for your sins. So obviously that's comedy, and I think this is interesting. I think like what, what there's a lot of people who would take offense to what he well, says. Well, you know, Andrew Schultz, again, he takes shots at all sides, and he talks about a lot of very controversial issues. But there are some comedians that have been accused of only taking shots at particular size and that's getting them more in trouble than others and and dave chappelle we've talked about him so much on this on mm -hmm. this program obviously his jokes about the transgender community are still really striking a nerve of certain people and ricky uh i believe it was uh a venue in minneapolis that yeah. didn't want to host dave chappelle even though they, they had already sold out the show yeah like hours before it was supposed to happen on his tour they canceled it and they said in a statement that they want to make their venues the safest space in the country um, which it's comedy, it's comedy clubs. They shouldn't be the safest space. But they also said, which I think is just really layered in with irony here. We believe in diverse voices and the freedom of artistic expression, but in honoring that we lost sight of the impact this would have, which I mean, they don't believe in artistic free expression <laughs> if they're censoring Well, the people. weird thing about it is we've known for months of these types of jokes that Dave Chappelle yeah. you know, makes. If they felt like this was something not in line with their values, then why did they sell tickets to this in the first place? And it seems like they caved to, you know, the, the backlash on Twitter. And I just have to keep telling these corporations, Twitter is not real. But another venue, um, like they shifted the event over there and it like went on and the same net cultural effect happened. Just these people kind of yep. couch their own uh, liability there but well there's a professor kevin gannon on twitter he wrote the Chappelle episode seems like a classic case of the marketplace of ideas that you guys love functioning as it should so he's basically saying look like and this is true schultz is true of Chappelle. 
this is how it should work. One mm-hmm. venue wants to support this speech, one venue doesn't. And I think that's as much protected by the First Amendment as anything else, both the legal First Amendment, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously generally only applies to the government, but the culture of the First Amendment, which is really what we're talking about here, yeah. because none of these are government entities. Uh, you know, your, your, your colleague, Greg Lukianoff, then went further and said, yes, the private venue is protected, even within the culture of the First Amendment. Yeah, and you'd be hard pressed to find anyone that's in the pro free speech crowd saying you had to platform them, go arrest them. Like that's not what we're talking about. But yeah, but he says, but we still need to have a debate about whether it was the right move or not. And I think that's kind of where we are right now, which is like, yeah, you can cancel whatever you want to cancel, but like, what is the role of comedy? I think like nobody really has a standard here. Like when the language of safetyism is used, like the Andrew Schultz joke that he just that we just listened to. Who's made unsafe by that joke is my question. Like you can hate it, you could be offended by it, but who who's going to be less safe today because he told that joke? I don't think a single person. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and I think um, another thing that Greg really highlights is the difference between the democratic right to free speech, which is our First Amendment, which is very cut and dry and actually was toothless until like a little ways into the 20th century, legally speaking, and the philosophical principle and free speech culture and how this is a net loss for our, our culture in general, because every time somebody's deplatformed for hitting a third rail issue, it has a chilling effect. And comedy is the last place that you want to have a chilling effect because this is where we're supposed to have reprieve from the tense third rail issue, third rail issues, and laugh with people that we disagree with. And what's next, in my opinion? Like I'm pro-choice. And I grew up, my mom always would get super offended by these banners that were on the Catholic schools around me that would say abortions, murder, yada, yada, yada. I disagree with that sentiment. I don't like that sentiment. But what's next? If if what Schultz is saying is off limits, then are we pulling down those banners? Like this is, yeah. I think that this is speech. This is what the, the public square should be about. It's, it's particularly about the stuff that offends you the most. Absolutely. So moving on to a very unfunny subject. Smuggling migrants at the border is quickly becoming big business. U.S. officials say it's turned into a staggering $13 billion black market industry, 26 times bigger than it was just four years ago. And with migration at record highs, it looks poised to keep growing. Now, Ravi, what is causing all of this? Yeah, this is super fascinating and really tragic in many ways you know as you said this has gone from 500 million dollar industry in 2018 to 13 billion now and there's a there's a bunch of things causing this you know number one there are conditions in central america a lot of the countries that people are fleeing that are tough there are job openings in the u.s so they're both things pushing people out but also pulling people to us because right now this record unemployment means that you know these jobs are paying more there are more jobs once people get here policies of both trump and biden have been uh actually favorable in a weird way uh we may have time to talk about this but there's a weird quirk in the law right now that's incentivizing people to try to cross because they're being sent back quicker which actually in a weird way incentivizes them to come across and then you have like there's a new industry really that's that's mm-hmm. gone from like a very mom and pop uh smuggling operations to now you know, almost conglomerate cartel style operations where like you have multi-state in Mexico operations to get people across the border that involve very complicated logistics and where there are a lot of profits to be made. And New York Times did some really good reporting on this, just showing that this is highly professional. The cartels are, are not just, you know, about drugs and weapons at this point. They're diversifying their businesses. And 
I think this is complicated morally because I think like I think the three of us generally believe that we should be allowing more people into this country, but I'm not sure this is the best way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a huge uh, human cost. There have been 1.7 million migrant encounters in 2021, and just recently, 53 migrants are found dead in a trailer in Texas. It is the deadliest incident of human smuggling on U.S. soil. In San Antonio, Texas, at least 53 dead. The bodies found in a sweltering tractor trailer on the city's southwest side. We're not supposed to open up a truck and see stacks of bodies in there. It's endangering people with the the sense that they can come here illegally and and thrive and survive, which I don't demonize them for at all. But there's clearly something very broken in our politic and in what we're radiating out to the rest of the world in terms of our openness and receptivity and also just the confusing like like Kafka-esque system of trying to actually get here legally that people yeah. think they can't even surmount in the first place. Right, and Corey, I thought, I thought I'm confused by the story though because I thought Kamala Harris was in charge of this. She was going to solve this. Oh yeah, she's uh, doing such well, a good job with all those I, things she's in charge I, of. I, I, don't, I don't think Harris has really gotten to that because of all of these confusing policies. Uh, it, it really just incentivized him to go through it in, a, in an illegal manner. And like you said before, uh, Robbie, it's actually both Trump and Biden's policies that have contributed to this. Now with Trump, of course he had Title 42, which made it where basically people who were crossing the border illegally were sent back a lot quicker during the pandemic. And that increased the number of illegal immigrants that actually actually came back because when you send them quicker, they can just come back quicker. The recidivism rate basically among people trying to come back into the country over and over and over again was higher. And these smugglers are taking advantage of that. But then also, too, you have Biden's policies. You know, he's made it easier for asylum seekers. They basically will have their claims evaluated by asylum officers instead of the overburdened immigration judges. And so a lot of that info is going down into a lot of these countries in Central America, South America. People are getting this info. There are nefarious bad actors sending false information about open borders here in America and things like that. And it's just causing an influx of these people. They believe that it'll be a lot easier under Biden to get into the country. So why wouldn't they come? Yeah, there's, yeah. it's both the perception and the reality, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's driving this. The, the logistics here are really fascinating, and we'll link to this article. There, you know, these cartels are really like big corporations at Basically, this point. Yeah. They were they're giving people color coded bracelets. They have, you know, all kinds of transportation from plane, bus to private vehicles. They have stash houses. They have all kinds of surveillance and. Honestly, like, I can't tell, you know, Ricky, like, should we actually, because there, there are a lot of politicians calling out the cartels. You know, there's this bill in, in Congress by uh, Representative Warren Davidson, and he's just essentially saying, we need to focus on the cartels. We need more sanctions on the cartels. There's a part mm -hmm. of me that thinks, hey, maybe they're just solving a problem that needs to be solved and getting people over this border. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't sympathize with them, obviously, but I would say that it's similar to the idea that we're going to fight drugs by, like, doing a having a war on the drug dealers and that's what the war on right. drugs was and that doesn't work like right. they, they're only there because there's a gap and an opportunity and yes they're terrible people who are seizing that opportunity but that also is the fault of us for creating that and i think this is one of these situations where this is such a huge crisis that we need like an emergency bipartisan sit down to talk about this yeah. because right now we have a a right wing that wants to stifle the border entirely, make it harder to come in, and then a left wing that says like, well, we don't have the the political control to overpower that, so we're just not gonna enforce the rules that are in place. And this is enormously detrimental, not only to our country, because there's huge stresses being put on border states that are just 
so difficult to deal with, but also to the human beings that want to come here and actually participate in our society and are relegated to the fringes when they do actually get here. So it's just, it's bad for everyone. Yeah, I'm not necessarily, like I'm not with you on thinking that the, that we have like equally portioned blame here. Like I think Trump ran for president by calling Mexicans rapists and criminals. And like to me, like the, there, there was a spirit within the Republican Party at one point in Congress, you know, people like Rubio, McCain, et cetera, to reform our immigration system. I think it's hard pressed to find anybody on that side of the aisle anymore who's willing to put any political capital into common sense solutions like reforming the policy towards dreamers or uh, increasing the numbers of visas, et cetera, in this country, like for all the different types of jobs that we need. Like to me, I think like- I don't think that's entirely true. There's a lot of libertarian sentiment on the right. And I think that there actually is hope for genuine reform. I think within the right generally, I'm just not sure it's in Congress. Anymore. No, I'm saying, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm, but I'm saying both sides in Congress have this like mound of like this legal mess that we have of how we regulate our border. And one side is saying like, let's over enforce that. And the other side is saying, yeah. let's not enforce that. And it doesn't get to the fact that there is a legal mess in the middle. Right. That yeah. is just like, we have title 42 is still plugging our border right now. Like right. what? Well, it's just yeah. become it's just become way too ideological. But if the burgeoning border smuggling business wasn't bad enough, the migrant crisis is no longer just an international issue. It's evolving into an interstate dilemma. Republican governors in Texas and Arizona are busing thousands of migrants to D.C. and Democratic mayors in big northeast cities are up in arms as they struggle to accommodate the influx. And that includes Mayor Eric Adams here in New York. Uh, Three thousand uh, people uh, needed shelter in our city. Unlike other states in their heartless manner of sending those people seeking a place to stay in our country was sent out of those bordering states and sent to uh, other locales. If it's New York, if it's Washington, the mere fact is we are responsive and we responded. Okay, Robbie, we got a lot of finger pointing going on here. Okay, what exactly is your read on all of this that Mayor Adams is talking about? I think about? taking a step back, I think that there we have different states in this country playing hot potato with actual human beings. Yeah. And I think that's the, the problem here is yeah. that like, look, like we've got people in our country who need help and they need to be resettled. And you just try to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are here and say, like, what if you had to go to another country that was that was foreign to you and you need to resettle and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, your life was confusing? Like, how would you want to be treated? And I wouldn't want to be passed off from one state to the next and be treated as a burden. I would want to be welcomed. And I think that New York as a city has a history of welcoming immigrants. Yeah. And I think we should have a different tune here. And as you'll probably get to, Eric Adams, I don't think he's solid on his facts on this. Yeah, Eric Adams, this number of, uh, what do you say, 3,000 uh, people filling up their shelters, that number isn't necessarily accurate, and it doesn't reflect all the migrants that have actually been coming to New York as a result of this policy from Abbott. First of all, there's no evidence that the the, the governors of Texas and Arizona have been sending migrants directly to New York City. Yeah, uh, they and have also that's been consensual. I mean, you can debate over what sort of position they're putting people in to ask them, but they've the migrants have consented to being relocated. Yeah, and I'm not sure what the problem there would be. Like, let's pretend like there were buses. Like, like pretend, forgetting like what the actual intent is, like let's let's give the worst possible intent to the governors of Arizona and Texas and say like- Well, it is the worst possible like, intent. Let's say that they are just trying to do political stunts. 
and but they're giving people free buses to go to different cities in the U.S. that they want to get to. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, that's actually a, I, a good. That's a good thing. What I would say to Governor Abbott is sending poor migrants away to more desirable cities where people will actually try to help them is not the Christian conservative flex you think it is. Yeah, you're actually only proving that places like New York and D.C. are more compassionate about these individuals, and you're just making yourselves look more heartless. But another thing, though, about what Mayor Adams is talking about here about these these three thousand individuals, there has been an influx of people having to go to these shelters. Um, uh, since like April of this year and not all these people are you know migrants and illegal immigrants and things like that some of them are just homeless people yeah. and so this number that he's coming up with is a combination of like the total number of people hitting these shelters it's not necessarily a number associated with all these people that have that have been involved in this uh, relocation program that Abbott has been uh, engaging in yeah and I think even if you take a cynical read on what um what the governors down in Arizona and Texas are doing like objectively it's good politics i do think it's stunty i don't i don't believe in using people as pawns but as as a whole i don't know why migrants coming here would not want to go to the cities where they were the politicians have the luxury of being able to say you're welcome here yeah. we want to pay for all of your services and your medicine and which is what adams was campaigning on right. just a few months ago and unfortunately the reality is we have these border states that are dealing with spending their own tax dollars on on patching the federal government's job of protecting our borders that are crippled by the influx of migrants right now. And then we have these politicians in these non-border coastal elite cities saying like who have the luxury of being able to say it, it, it's the right thing to to be open and to be welcoming, which of course it is. But unfortunately, they're faced with just a drop in the bucket of what these state other states are seeing. And I mean, we can't even handle it in New York already, and we've just totally changed our tune. And we're like, oh, never mind. Yeah, I think we could handle it. That's the, I think that's we the could thing too, that, but I, we can't posture yeah. like, oh, we're we're a utopia here, and then you know we put our feet to our fire, the fire for two seconds, and we can't handle it. I think we need to take a long term view. Like we we have job openings, right? Yeah. Like forget yeah. about the humanitarian argument, which I believe in vehemently. Like we just have a practical. Most cities in this country, New York included have lots of job openings yeah. yeah and for us like it's good for our city to Absolutely. welcome people to take those jobs 100%. sure but i mean to your point ricky about how much this costs the taxpayer in a state like texas it's going to cost them either way because according to texas state records it costs more than fourteen hundred dollars per rider to bust these undocumented immigrants to Washington. It must be a nice bus. But there's this uh, there's this news outlet in Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, KXAS-TV. They reported that busing costs totaled more than $1.6 million in April and May. Um, now, Abbott talked about some initiative to raise private funds for these uh, busing operations, but so far he's only raised about $116,382. So that means the rest of that money, that $1.6 million it costs to bust those individuals, uh, that's going to be given to the tax. The I think it's also been effective, though, as a wake up call because now, now we're seeing that. You know, they're DC and New York City. Both of them have a tiny little drop of the bucket of what the border or border states are dealing with, and we can't handle it. We're buckling under the pressure. Right. What I like, what you were saying is interesting to me. Like, there's a, an effort to raise private funds. Now, you could imagine a left and right wing version of the very yeah. same effect. Hundred percent. You could have a, a left wing pro immigration group who would be like, "Hey, let's raise money." to get people trans free transportation to whatever city they want to go to, including more welcoming liberal cities, I would, pay, I would donate to that effort. Yeah. yeah. Or you have, like in this case, like what you called stunty, I agree, uh, efforts on behalf of these right-wing states to do the very same thing. And to me, I'm like, hmm, 
you could be right for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And like in the yeah. end, I'm not Make sure good this is on the your hill promises. I want to die on. Yeah. Because we have we have liberal mayors who are making promises for governors of states that are on the other side of the country for them and then not actually making good on it in the end. So well, if we this need was if this was some type of operation in which these liberal governors and these right-wing governors agreed on and they worked on a system together, I'd be all for it. But the GOP stooping to using these human beings as political props has inadvertently helped these migrants get to a much better part of the country. So kudos to Abbott. And it is the case of somebody being right for the wrong reasons because he actually went so far right, he ended up on the left <laughs> by helping these migrants escape a harsh and unforgiving environment. And I'm not talking about South America. <laughs> all right, well, let's talk about Let's talk about homework. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Look, as kids, we all thought homework sucked. But now the movement to end homework is picking up steam with a recent study arguing that elementary school teachers unfairly judge students' homework performance solely on their effort and ability rather than factoring in circumstances at home. Ricky, as probably you know the most current student at this table, what is your thoughts on this report and just homework in general? So the the original claim being made is that homework uh, promotes this myth of meritocracy and that because students have different home lives and socioeconomic situations that they have disparate outcomes in in their performance that's not reflective of their personal talents, which I think is true. But the idea that the solution to that is like starting to handicap people or boost people up based on their family's net worth is really reductive and really insulting in my opinion. I think that there's a way to look at homework and to look at the performance of a student holistically that is healthy and normal and can help them get on a track to succeed, but to to kind of like lower the level down to someone and to say, oh, your family is not from a good enough background or you can't do this or you shouldn't be expected to, to achieve at the same level as everyone else is really reductive as much as I hated homework. But I do have ideas for reform, but I'll, I'll pass it to you yeah, guys I don't first. know what's come of us. Though. Like, you know, young me would be shocked to see the version of me now that's about to advocate for homework, which I don't know, <laughs> this is a true adult moment. I do think that, uh, this study, and, and you know, we'll link to both the study, and there's an interesting response from Jay Caspian King in the New York Times about this. To me, this seems like it's advocacy masquerading as a scientific study, as, as a, um, a piece of social science. Like they set up this 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 dichotomy in the paper between quote structural inequality as a frame, and then quote the myth of meritocracy. They use the term myth of meritocracy in this paper, and then they basically assign some of like the moves that teachers make that they're quote buying into the myth of meritocracy. And to me, I'm thinking that phrase has no place in an academic paper unless you're you're examining it from an objective way. They just take it as a given that the, that meritocracy is a myth. And then they say everything that by, that that fits into meritocracy is bad. Mm -hmm. So to yeah. me, that's advocacy, not social science. Yeah. Well, let's just take a look at some of the the pros and cons of homework. One, some of the pros of homework is that it's said to improve student achievement, including grades, test results, and the likelihood to attend college. It helps reinforce learning and development skills, uh, critical thinking skills, independent uh, problem solving skills. It allows parents to be involved in their children's learning. Not sure if that's always a good thing because sometimes the parents don't know what they're talking about. And it can help with learning loss. And that's a big thing, uh, especially about how education has been impacted after you know the pandemic. But now some things against homework, it causes increased student stress levels. 
It can lead to sleep deprivation and other health problems such as headaches and weight loss. And it has what we're talking about here. It disadvantages low income students. Uh, if they don't have things like computers and broadband Internet, that could really affect their ability to be able to complete this homework in a successful manner. Yeah, I think. You know, as somebody who ran a school, like, or ran many schools, I, I have mixed feelings about homework itself. Yeah. I think their justification for either, you know, getting rid of homework or, you know, changing the nature of homework is what I take issue with here, not the idea that we would assign less homework. I yeah. generally ascribe to, you know, a pretty well, uh, you know, I think well accepted uh, formula, which is start with 10 minutes of homework in the early grades and then add 10 minutes every year until you have two hours of homework in high school. Two hours. But um, yeah, like I think in oh, high school, man. that's like in a rigorous, you know, AP level courses, there yeah. is a place for homework, but it has to be, you know, homework has to be fine tuned. And, and this is something that I learned in watching teachers, but also just being a busy administrator myself is that homework is often the thing that's planned the most poorly. It's like worksheets and things like that. Yeah, but high quality homework, like when you're thinking about like, all right, I'm going to teach a concept uh, and then I'm going to help my students master it. And then you run out of time in a class and you're saying, okay, I'm going to then give you time to practice it. You're going to hand it in so I can see whether you've mastered it or not. But then you're also, as Jay Caspian King points out in his piece, you're also giving students the opportunity to show initiative and be self-driven and test mm -hmm. that is really, really important um, in the academic framework if it's done well. I don't think it's like a big deal one way or another in yeah. most schools if they got rid of it or not. But I do think it would be a big deal if we call yeah. meritocracy a myth that needs to be rooted out in our schools. I agree. And I think one of the worst things that you can do, especially with a young kid, is to say you can't. Yes. I think that's yeah. so disempowering. And I think that the, the response to that is to have something that they definitely can do. And so my idea would be make it an hour cap of homework or whatever whatever time frame a study demonstrates is you know achievable for the vast majority of students. Make it the teacher's responsibility to make sure that what they assign is doable in that period of time. And then if students are still failing to do that, that's a good sign that there's something wrong in their home life. If they're being if they have so many after school activity problems or they're working jobs that they shouldn't be or they are they're overburdened, like that would be a warning sign that this student needs help this student needs to be cared for versus just assigning extraneous homework and then people can't achieve there are certain neighborhoods and certain circumstances which children uh have horrid home lives and it, it would be difficult for them to even for one hour focus on um these homework assignments especially if the homework assignments like you said ravi aren't tailored to actually having a kid success if it's just busy work and things like that uh i, I think that would be difficult I, I definitely don't think the bar should be lower for anybody based off of their race or what neighborhood they live in or anything like that but i think that stuff should be taken into consideration when just assigning this stuff out i don't Absolutely, think we should lower the I'm bar saying. We should take it into consideration. But homework does suck. And here's my problem with homework. Here's my problem with homework. So we're telling these kids who have been in school for eight plus hours, when you get home, you still have to do more work. Yeah, yeah but remember my you know? formula that you like, you know, if you're a kid in high school, you're getting out in high school a lot of times two o'clock, three o'clock. And so if we give you two extra hours, you are doing the nine to five. It's just a different kind of nine to five. Like there's like a couple yeah. hours, just like any professional. I, I think that where you're not like sitting there listening to somebody talk the yeah. whole time, you're, you're doing it on your own. And a lot of schools, you know, most schools, I would say high schools, have a place for the kid to stay in the school yes. to do the homework, whether it's the library, yes. mm -hmm. et cetera. Like, you know, kids who came to my school took public transportation to, to our high school. They could stay after school in the library. They could do their work and then hop on a later bus. Uh, they can get that done. My mom worked two jobs and I didn't do a lot of homework. I used to see kids, uh, you know, their parents would clearly help them with their homework. Mm -hmm. But in the end, the whole experience helped us all because those kids might have done better on that homework then 
but they lost the life lesson of the initiative that Caspian King talks about and mm -hmm. like the sense of, you know, ownership over your work and being self-driven to get it done and dealing with the consequences of not getting done actually taught me a lot that even though like some of the consequences sucked when I was in high school, yeah. I then became more self-driven by the time I got to college, whereas those kids whose parents were doing it for them when they get yeah. to college are not going to be self-starters as much yeah. anymore. I, I agree that kids need structure and discipline, but I just disagree that it can only come from homework. I mean, doing chores, after school jobs, uh, playing an instrument, sports. I think all those things can teach these kids that structure and self-discipline. And I don't know if like, you know, just doing, you know, uh, math problems for two hours straight is the only way to teach that discipline. But I do agree if the, if, if the school gives the children a place to do it at, then yeah, sure, that's that's fine. And and I think you should just schedule it into the day. I mean, imagine if your boss told you, you know, at nine o'clock tonight, you're gonna have to do this four hours after you got off work. That's basically what these kids are being told to do. I think know? a lot of places do this. There are study halls and schools and things like that. Yeah. I think that's great. But I think like if to get to to get off Homer for a second and get at the claim being made against meritocracy, this is the problem I have, is that inequality is being used as an excuse to lower the bar on a lot of things. And I think if we applied the standard to everything it applied to, basically every academic measure and every system in our schools essentially plays out in, in unequal ways based on where people come from. But it's not even just that. It's like, you know, kids have more access to, to better baseball fields and, you know, parents will drive them to and from practice, et cetera. Like this would be like saying like, all right, let's get rid of the competitive nature of, of youth sports because some kids have access to more resources than others. Yeah. I think that's absurd. It is know? absurd when you consider how many great athletes came from, you know, poor neighborhoods and things like right. that. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah, to be like, hey, like, you know, uh, you know, LeBron James, like you, we can't, we can't count on you to compete well because your mom has to work two jobs. Yeah. So therefore I'm going to tell you through your entire sports career, how many obstacles you have and why you can't do it as opposed to being like, Hey, you're rising above that. And yeah. like, it's harder for That's you without a doubt. And we as a society want to invest resources to try to make it as equal as possible. But I think just telling kids they can't yeah. and saying that like, you know, saying one kid's better than this thing than another kid and pretending like that's not true isn't helping anybody. That's a good point. Well, we've got a couple of quick updates to close the show today, starting with an unlikely breakthrough for Democrats in Congress in a major reversal. Senator Joe Manchin says he's now on board with a deal the Democrats are calling the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And the new name aside, that's a great way to read the room, by the way. This bill includes a few key priorities that Democrats have been trying to pass for over well over a year now. We don't have all the details yet, but we do know that close to $370 billion are going towards all kinds of climate provisions, the biggest such in investment in U.S. history. I just want to read something that I uh, that the, uh, the Democrats released on this bill saying the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 will make a historic down payment on deficit reduction to fight inflation, invest in domestic energy production and manufacturing and reduce carbon emissions by roughly 40 percent by 2030. Uh, and Manchin and Schumer are basically saying that this bill, which adds up to about 700, 700 billion dollars, is pretty much entirely paid for by uh, different things they're doing with taxes and things like that. So it's a pretty big breakthrough if they can actually get it through Congress. And um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that helps the Democrats if any, uh, in the midterms. We're, we live in such strange times. And, you know, to be clear, I've been critical of Biden. But if you if, if I were just to tell you, hey, like a couple years into Biden presidency, presidency, you have record low unemployment. He passed an infrastructure bill. He passed the stimulus bill. And then he's about to pass this. You'd be like, wow, like that's a successful president. Just clearly, we don't believe that. I don't believe it's yeah, been a successful yeah. presidency. But like it's really odd that he's actually getting certain things done. Yet he's one of the most unpopular presidents unpopular we've ever had. Right now. We've been covering, you know, covered many times now the Wuhan lab leak theory and, 
you know, trying to wrestle with the evidence of like, did COVID come from a lab and was it covered up or did it come from the wet market? And we had covered, I think the last time we talked about this, we covered a study that seemed to suggest or a pair of studies that seemed to suggest that uh, or at least lend credence to the people who believe that it came from the wet market and not mm -hmm. from the lab. Uh, and uh, we had addressed it on that show and talked about how it wasn't peer reviewed and Science Magazine uh, just released the peer review and validated the results of that study. So I think it's one at least mark in favor of people who believe that it was lab leak, uh, or sorry, that it was the wet market that the that COVID came from. You know, the authors of this study are, are careful to point out that this is not definitive, but mm -hmm. it's suggestive that it could have come from the market and not the lab. Yeah, I still have some issues with aspects of the study, which we've aired out the last time. But um, certainly what I what my read on it was, was that the, these pair of studies that were by the same authors um, definitely seems to indicate that there was a super spreader event in the in the market. So regardless of the origin of the actual virus, certainly that market seems to have been a place where it kind of just exploded into the population. Well, we may never know that one as well, but we'll keep a lookout. We want to thank you all for listening and watching today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.